The Muslim Brotherhood has been around for close to a century, but most people, certainly most Americans and Europeans, know very little about it. Is it reformist and nonviolent, as its spokesmen and defenders claim? Or is it, as Cynthia Farahad argues in a new book, the world's most dangerous terrorist organization? The book is titled The Secret Apparatus, The Muslim Brotherhood's Industry of Death. Cynthia Farhad is an Egyptian-American writer, counterterrorism expert, and fellow at the Middle East Forum, whose president, Daniel Pipes, a distinguished scholar, wrote the foreword to her book. She's with us today, also on hand for the discussion, FDD's Ruel Marc-Correct, formerly a Middle East specialist at the CIA's Directorate of Operations. Nice of you to join us, too, here on Foreign Policy. So, Cynthia, first of all, welcome. Good to see you. Even people are not everybody seeing you, but I am because we're doing this on Zoom. Uh, I see your Christmas tree in the background. Looks like a very pretty house or apartment that you're in. Thank you for having me. Very glad to start. You know, start. About, I don't know you well. We're acquainted, but I, but start by telling us a little bit about yourself. I mean, you're. I mean, start with you were born in Egypt, right? Yes, I was born and I've lived in Egypt until October 30th, 2011. That's when I came to America after the so-called Arab Spring. Mm. It wasn't a coincidence. My life in Egypt, I've come from quite a comfortable background, but I was horrified by President Mubarak's regime's policies. I started to see myself as a dissident when I was a teenager because at the time the government decided where you go to school and they did something so sinister. If you are good at something, if you're a great artist, if you have serious passion for a specific science, they assign you to go to the exact opposite school to break you. I'm into classical art, not modern art very critical about modern art. So I always thought I would study art, especially that we have a gorgeous art school in Egypt. And the government said absolutely never. I went as far as reproducing an imprint by Leonardo da Vinci to show them how worthy I am. And during the meeting with the deputy minister of education, he says, the more you do this, the more impossible you are to get into art school. You are never going to study art in this country. And that turned me into a dissident right then. <laughs> and I said, you know what? I have to study the system of governance and its ideological underpinnings that breaks human beings in that way. And that's exactly the recipe of how you become a third world country, right? They said you will study law. Egyptian law at the time was predominantly based on Sharia law. So I would just be studying propaganda there were no private art schools at the time. So I ended up going to a private school to study mass communication just to get a degree so my mom wouldn't be mad. <laughs> <laughs> and But at the same time, I started studying in a militaristic way. Every waking hour, burying myself in history books, Islamic theology books, both Sunni and Shia theologies. And I did this for 23 years. At some point, I was studying so much that my mom sent me to a psychiatrist. I wasn't causing problems like normal teenagers. I was buried in books. I wanted to feel exactly what a terror theologian would feel. I locked myself in my room for seven months to go into deep, deep meditative study of theology from its original sources. I devoted my whole life to study. And uh, I came up with some very interesting conclusions. Before you go to those conclusions, let me just back up some mundane questions and nosy questions, but I have a reporter's license, so I'm allowed. Your family was middle class, upper class. What did your father do? They were upper class remnants of Egyptian aristocracy. There is a street in downtown Cairo named after my great grandfather was a surgeon. My father was a physician. My grandfathers were physicians. Always the firstborn in our family has to be a physician, but I decided to not do that and do what I'm doing. And it was very unorthodox for previous aristocracy 
for someone like me to do what I was doing, especially that I was a woman too, because it's a big no-no to get into politics uh, because it invites all sorts of darkness, especially if you're a classic liberal and uphold ideals that are similar to the founding ideas of America. And if I may, again, we're getting, you know, so you're, you're Sunni Muslim. That's what you were raised as a Sunni Muslim. No, I was raised Coptic Christian. Coptic Christian, okay. Which even means more not getting into politics. We Absolutely, never discussed yeah, yeah, politics in the house. That was mm. when I turned 23 years old, I co founded a classical political party that was for separation of mosque and state and peace and normalization with Israel. And I did this, of course, behind my family's back. Mm-hmm. I would tell my mom, oh, I'm going out for beer. <laughs> <laughs> I only had to tell them because my name was going to be published in the papers the next day. And of course, there was a massive family intervention and mm. everyone was freaking out and members of my family stopped talking to me and they said, you're going to get us all killed. Well, but by the way, I mean, you, you started to talk about how into, you were drawn intellectually into this area, how you got into the the terrorism business on the side of the good guys, of course, um, but it wasn't entirely an intellectual exercise because you, 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 and your family have experienced the wrath of Islamists, jihadists, caliphaters. Call them what you will, and maybe you should just say a word about that. Absolutely. Prior to the 1952 Muslim Brotherhood putch, something that a lot of people don't know, that Gamal Abdel Nasser was a card-carrying member of the Muslim Brotherhood, and the 1952 coup d'etat was carried out on their behalf. And it transformed Egypt from an incredibly modernized, beautiful society where women had incredible freedoms, minorities had incredible freedom, religious discrimination was almost non-existent. We had the freedom of assembly. My great-grandmother wore a bathing suit on Egyptian public beaches. My mother went to school in a skirt. That was normal in Egypt. So suddenly the culture shifted drastically. I must say that some of the women at the American University of Cairo late at night dressed that way still. But uh, that's a side note. <laughs> Very late at night, come behind closed doors. Oh yes, yes, of course, of course. Now Egypt suffers from cultural dissociative identity disorder. The Egypt that you see in the news is not the Egypt I grew up in. I grew up in a very different type of alternative Egypt, and I could have stayed there in that very westernized lifestyle where there was no bigotry. We wore bikinis on the private beaches. We had concerts and artists from across the world coming to sing for us. I might add, I mean, what you're describing is the residue of post-Ottoman society throughout the entire Middle East. Now, I think no bigotry might be pushing it, but I mean, the Middle East, you know, in the 1920s and 1930s, 1940s, even into the early 50s, was a far, far different place. So what you're describing in Egypt could be applied to Syria, could be applied to Iraq, Algeria, I mean, applied all over. That's part of the great decline of the entire, certainly of the Arab Middle East. So it's it's not Egypt-specific. You're absolutely right. I mentioned that uh, the Muslim Brotherhood is almost a century old, more specifically 1928 it began. Did it begin, do you think, as a reaction to what we're talking about, to the fall of the Ottoman Empire, the fall of the caliphate? The idea that Western ideas, Western values were taking over in Turkey and elsewhere. Was this a response or a reaction to that, in your view? It's partially that, but it was also the Islamist project or the Islamic Awakening project, as it's known in the Middle East, Mashru'a Sahwa, started long before that, specifically in the last two decades of the 19th century. It took a very sinister term. Islamists started adopting a project of militarizing Islam. Muslims, until I would say even the 1970s in Egypt, were not looking at everything through the theopolitical lens of Islamism. It took a very long time for that to happen. And the Awakening Project is what began that sinister plot against the nations of the Middle East, specifically through the Kaiser Wilhelm II and his advisor, Max von Oppenheim, they started the project. Max von Oppenheim wrote a memorandum, I believe it was 
maybe 1889, that was to foment revolutions in the Middle East against the British. And he said in this memorandum that he is going to unleash Muslim fanaticism that borders on insanity. That's a quote. That began German cooperation with covert Islamist groups. I trace the earliest of these groups. In Syria, it was the Makassid Foundation. Egypt, it became the Islamic Ethics Association, where these non-governmental organizations started to operate with two facades, a benign one for charity and a covert one for agitation of jihad. Oppenheim recruited a lot of Islamists from across the Middle East for jihadist agitation in Algeria, Tunisia, Egypt, the Ottoman Empire, Libya, and then after they trained them, sent them back to these countries. One of the most important recruits of Oppenheim was the German agent called Mohammed Al-Khudr Hussein. This individual later became the head of Al-Azhar University, one of the largest Islamic universities in the world. He was the head of this university in the 50s. It predates Hassan al-Banna and the Muslim Brotherhood. Oppenheim's agent, Al-Khidr Hussein, was the president of the Islamic Ethics Association, which recruited Hassan al-Banna. And he became their most important recruit. That's how the project began. Ruel, give us 90 seconds on Hassan al-Banna, who he was. Cynthia explains how he came out of this revolutionary thought. Actually, let's both talk about Hassan al-Banna a little. People know the name, but I don't think they know much about him other than that he was ascetic and revolutionary and kind of in love with death. I think that's probably pushing it a little bit too much. Al-Banna and the Muslim Brotherhood actually do come into a long tradition that was developing of Muslim opposition to the westernization of the Middle East, which kicked into gear in the latter part of the Ottoman Empire. And also, needless to say, in Egypt, you also have the English presence. I mean, the Muslim Brotherhood is definitely, without a shadow of a doubt, anti-imperial. You have to keep together the anti-imperial aspect with anti-Westernization. They go hand in hand. And this is happening throughout the entire Muslim world. Albana is, I suppose, because of his, what was it, school teacher background, he was more attuned to what you might call the educational process. But the phenomenon that he represents is hardly unique to Egypt. It's happening everywhere. It grows as the westernization of the Middle East actually continues through Middle Eastern hands. For example, I mean, there's a lot of association. I think it's probably incorrect to describe Nasser as, you know, a card-carrying member of the Brotherhood. He was sympathetic to the Brotherhood because the Brotherhood was anti-Western, anti-imperial, and anti-English. I think the Brotherhood later would certainly not describe Nasser sympathetically given how many individuals he put in prison. And I think the problem that the Brotherhood and other radical Islamic groups have had is that simply removing the Western imperial presence didn't do anything to stop the Westernization, which continued through dictatorship. You also have to remember that the Brotherhood got a huge uplift from the Saudis. Once upon a time, the Saudis were the second venue for the Muslim Brotherhood, and that was with the royal family's encouragement. As the royal family became more skeptical of Nasser's pan-Arabism, it increased its support for the Brotherhood. I also think within Saudi Arabia, there was a great deal of dissatisfaction with the royal family. One of the ways to express that dissatisfaction was through association with the Brotherhood. So you have two things really driving the growth of the Brotherhood. You have the westernizing dictatorships in Egypt and Syria, and you have Saudi support, which continued really up until the 1970s. I would have to respectfully disagree with that with some of the things, because Nasser was indeed a card-carrying member of the Brotherhood, not only according to the biographies of several of the secret apparatus members who were also members in the covert free officer cell inside the Muslim Brotherhood. Nasser's recruiter detailed it in his biography. People talked about his initiation and how they were initiated inside the secret apparatus and swore allegiance to Sindhi, Abdurrahman Sindhi, the head of the civilian wing of the secret apparatus on a gun and Quran. And actually, Nasser was open about his involvement with the Muslim Brotherhood. 
1952, he went with Sadat, with Anwar al-Sadat and Abdul Rahman al-Banna, Hassan al-Banna's brother, to the grave of Hassan al-Banna and they swore their allegiance again to uphold Hassan al-Banna's mission. With an interview with Nasser, he said he re-pledged his allegiance to Banna. It was covering the front pages of government newspapers and magazine, the picture of the three of them together in front of the grave. Again, I have to say, I think Sayyid Kutub would be really, really surprised to hear that Nasser was a friend of the Brotherhood. Guys, let's not talk about Sayyid Kutub until we introduce that, so yeah, but, to but our but listeners the, who he was. That's the problem with the Muslim Brotherhood. It's a covert organization, so a lot of its affiliations are not clear. And also the rift between Nasser and the other civilian wing of the Muslim Brotherhood was a rift over power and not ideology. And I'm proving that from the Muslim Brotherhood's own words, both from the Nasser camp and the anti-Nasser camp. These are not my personal allegations. Look, as you make clear in the book, there are any number of important figures in the Middle East who were either Muslim brotherhoods who were very sympathetic to the movement when they were young and had different thoughts when they were older. We talk about the Saudis, as Ruel points out, were very pro-Muslim brotherhood. They are not today. The Emirates are not pro-Muslim brotherhood today. However, the Qataris are. Kamal al-Ataturk was not pro-Muslim Brotherhood. He was a westernizer, but the people in power today, President Erdogan, is certainly, as we'll get to, pro-Muslim Brotherhood. So people change. Yeah, but you should also remember that even after Ataturk became Ataturk, that he always cherished the title al-Khazi, which is one of the terms for holy warrior. It's complex. Ataturk, a complicated figure. He was indeed, and a snappy dresser, as I always point out. Uh, yes, yes. Yeah, I wanted you to get into this too, because all the influences on Hassan al-Banna were not Islamic have in mind, as you discuss, Hitler and, of course, Stalin. Lenin's early call, I believe it was in 1917, right after the Bolshevik Revolution, he gave a speech titled to the toiling Muslims in the world, something like that, where he basically denounced imperialism and said that, no, Turkish land will be given to Armenia, and he reached out to Muslims, and a lot of charismatic Islamist figures reciprocated and wrote very positive articles about Lenin and his call for merging the common elements between Islamism and communism. And the most prominent of those was Rashid Rida, wrote in his uh, Manar magazine at the time that Lenin was a great man and that Westerners were doing what they do best, which is vilify the good and praise the evil. So a lot of Islamists took Lenin's call very seriously. And the Communist Party in Egypt sent a delegation to meet with Lenin. One gentleman called Hussein al-Awrabi was the only Egyptian that I know of who personally met with Lenin, and he later became a very, very important figure in the Islamist movement uh, and agitation against the British in the Middle East. So that began the relationship. But Hassan al-Banna's, the most important influence in his life was his father. His father was a sheikh. He had operated a shop, a small shop where he fixed watches and clocks, but he focused on the religious indoctrination of his sons. And specifically in the radical Orthodox Hanbali school of jurisprudence, Hassan Obana's father actually rearranged the works of the legist Ahmed ibn Hanbal himself. So they were seeped into that uh, Orthodox school. That also is the link with Rashid Rida, who also was a big fan of Ibn Tabiya and, and the Hanbali school. There's another influence on Hassan al-Banna that you talk about were the assassins. And by the assassins, you know what I mean. I'm talking about the Hashajim, I think is the right word for it. These are, you should tell who they, they are Shia, they are Ismaili, tell who these were. And why the and and why this was of great influence on him and an inspiration for him. So I believe that one of the biggest and most misunderstood issues when it comes to the Middle East is the rift between the Sunni and the Shia sects, because it's always analyzed in the confines of the sectarian differences, rather than the 14 centuries of 
also history of competition and sometimes even cooperation. And that's why in my book, I have dived into 14 centuries of ideological cooperation and how it came to fruition with the Muslim Brotherhood. The Muslim Brotherhood's own words and one of the co-founders of the secret apparatus called Ali Ashmawi wrote in his memoir that the biggest, the biggest influence on the Muslim Brotherhood was the 11th and 12th century cult of al-Hashashin. The word Hashashin uh, later became assassin and then later the assassins. They are literally, that's the, literally the, the origin of the word. It's the most murderous cult in history. And the most intriguing part is the Assassin's Project has always been affiliated with people who had question marks on whether they are Sunni or Shia or atheists. Throughout history, while I was going through 14 centuries, these figures would constantly appear. And the same question would be asked in Persia, in Turkey, in the Ottoman Empire, in Egypt, and you name it, the same question would be asked. And what they did is Hassan Abana was absolutely mesmerized by the fact that the assassins were willing to kill and get killed just upon the orders of Hassan al-Sabah, which was their uh, leader. And he literally said that this is, was one of the most attractive aspects of uh, the assassins. And the assassins' uh, followers also uh, continued to try to bridge the gap between Sunni and Shia uh, theologians. One of the most important figures in history was a per Shah of Persia in the 1700s called Nadir Shah. In my opinion, he is the most important figure in what is known uh, in, in Islamist circles as the proximity project between Sunnis and Shia. In, in 1743, Nadir Shah held something called the Najaf Council where he met with delegates from the Ottoman Empire and from across the Sunni world, and he made specific demands. He wanted them to have uh, share em have embassies. They wanted uh, Sunnis to allow Shias to freely practice Hajj ritual according to their own values, and most importantly, he demanded that the Sunnis recognize the Shia Twelveth. Jafari sect is a fifth school of jurisprudence. Now that demand was made in 1743. Who delivers on this demand in 1960? The Muslim Brotherhood. Officially, through uh, Muhammad Sheltut, the head of Al-Azhar University and a member of the Muslim Brotherhood, issues a fatwa where he recognizes the Shia imamate 12 -er 12 sect of the Jafaris as a fifth school of jurisprudence. And that constituted the incredible cooperation between them. Also, I discuss a meeting that took place in 1938 between Ruhollah Khomeini before he became an Ayatollah and Hassan Obana. He visited him in his office in 1938. And they started working together, uh, the Muslim Brotherhood and Fidayeen al-Islam. And there are tons of pictures of Sayyid Quds with the head of al-Fidayeen al-Islam. And there is a, a very strong, very well-documented heritage between the, the two sects in that respect. And Khomeini, of course, became the founder of the Islamic Republic of Iran, the 1979 revolution. Can I say something about Khomeini? Because it's yeah. odd in the book, I have to say. I mean, I, I, I believe you have Khomeini in Egypt in 1937 meeting Hassan al-Banna. 38, uh, according to... So... In 1938, before he became a Khomeini, he was a he was just known as Rohala Musavi, uh, and he visited several Sunni countries, and he visited Hassan no, 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 in 1938 in his office in Egypt. And the person who no, can, where were you? I have to say there's the 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 records on Khomeini are fairly extensive. Yes. All right. And so the there there is and the man didn't like to travel much. Right. I think you'd probably agree with that a great memorializing line that's in uh Richard Burton, the traveler, not the actor's uh autobiography, which is a safar mira uh which is uh, uh tra travel is a portion of hellfire. 
uh, he was not a he was not a man. I mean, walking walking <laughs> around the block was an effort for Khomeini, let alone uh, going out of the country. I mean, he 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 went to Turkey. Uh, he went to Iraq. He briefly went through Kuwait, and he went to Nofalolo Chateau. There is no historical evidence whatsoever that I've seen in any Persian sources. And in 1938, the man is, uh, I mean, he's hardly in danger of anything. His first book doesn't come out until 1944, the Kashwasar, the uh, unveiling of secrets. So uh, it would be it would be known. Actually, there was a Persian source that made that claim. And I was hesitant to rely on it until I saw a document that's very compelling. Muslim Brotherhood's highest ranking defector, Tharwat al-Kharbawi, I interviewed him extensively for the book. The man has an autobiographical memory. He remembers everything that has ever happened. And he said, that while he was going through the archives of the Muslim Brotherhood, he was shocked to see a document where the editor-in-chief of the Muslim Brotherhood magazine, Al-Nazir, was sending a telegram asking the assistant of Hassan al-Banna whether he can write about the important visit by Rohallah Khomeini to Banna, or Banna doesn't want to discuss it in the publication. And he said, please get back to me as soon as possible. And this document, Tarwat al-Kharbawi showed it to me, and he published the actual original document in his book. And he says that he was absolutely shocked by that, and he couldn't believe in the authenticity of the document. So he went and he had a discussion with someone called Abbas Sisi, one of the founders of the Muslim Brotherhood. And Abbas Sisi confirmed that Rohallah was indeed present at the Muslim Brotherhood office. I forgot the name of the gentleman who first broke this information years ago, and I discounted it. I did not rely on it until the second source from inside the Brotherhood confirmed it. I think it makes sense because later on, it was alleged that Khomeini started to call himself supreme leader as a way to honor Hassan al-Banna. No, 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 that, that one's clear in Persian. That comes directly from the Shahs. It's Rahbah is an old term in Persian. It was the Shah used it, all the Shahs used it, and uh, Khomeini just simply just simply continued over. And I w- I'm with Joseph Shah on this one. I don't trust Hadith. And it sounds like what you've got here is, uh, you know, an Isnad. Uh, and uh, I, I don't... I, I don't no, I don't it's actually, I, I saw I the, uh, the original document, but it's, it's, it's whether or not he met, it's completely insignificant to the fact that now the project is very well established, the Proximity Project uh, website, you can access it and you can see its mission statement. And it says that uh, Iran uh, is the head of the Proximity Project uh, between Sunnis and Shia militants. And also uh, Yusuf al-Qaradawi, the Muslim Brotherhood theologian, advocated for the military alliance between both sects, both in, inside of fatwa, and he wrote a whole book on the topic to uh, urge Muslims to follow the tradition, the, the Persian tradition of allying with each other. And we, what we can agree on, I think, is that the Islamic Republic of Iran and the Muslim Brotherhood, their goals are, if not identical, quite similar in the sense that they want the defeat of the West, the defeat of infidels, they want the establishment of Sharia law universally, they want a Daral Harb, a, a domain of war until they establish the Daral Islam. Um, in, in there, there's there's much that that, con- that connects them in that way. Did one one final point on this though? Khomeini did he not translate Sayyid Qutb? And if the answer is yes, spend thirty seconds saying who Sayyid Qutb was. So some so people know. The current supreme leader of Iran, Ali Khamenei, uh, when he is in when he was in prison, he translated three of Sayyid Qutb's books to Persian, and they are still a mandatory reading for the Iranian Revolutionary Guard. And the Muslim Brotherhood does the same thing. Uh, Khomeini's book, Islamic Government, is also a mandatory reading uh, material for members of the Muslim Brotherhood. Okay, that's very. I think it's a very important point to show that there is that. Con- that convergence of views. And so what I wanted to, to, to get at, in 1928, what were the goals of the Muslim Brotherhood and have they been consistent all along till today? 
100%. And, and that's something that I admire about them. And I have learned a lot from the Muslim Brotherhood, by the way. Um, I have learned consistency. Consistency. No matter what the price is, they are very consistent. When Hassan Obama started his organization, he said, oh, this is not a political organization. This is a charitable group. And two years later, he said, okay, this is an industry of death. And they started to identify it as an industry of death. And he wrote about the art of death and the industry of death and constantly talking about death, death, death. So my subtitle is not my hyperbolic interpretation of the message. It's what they say they are doing. <laughs> that's, uh, that's according to the writings. And the current Muslim Brotherhood leaders regurgitate on their website and quote the same essay that was titled The Industry of Death and the other one that was titled The Art of Death. They just published it recently when they're calling for jihad. So, of course, they do the Arafat thing where, oh, we want peace and democracy in English. But when they speak in Arabic, they say, we come to you with slaughter. And that's a quote. Right. And 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 interestingly, and I know you've talked about this, this is, they the Muslim Brotherhood has managed to convince so many people that you wouldn't think would be naive about this that they are not what they are. So I'm thinking, so come to mind, for example, John Esposito, very well-known professor of Islamic studies, I guess you call it Georgetown University, um, quite a quite quite a, a career. He called the Muslim Brotherhood a force for democratization and stability in the Middle East. Uh, and I'm sure he speaks Arabic, so he could be reading all the kinds of things you're talking about in the original Arabic and know that that's not what they're saying Actually, about I, themselves sure and that they're dedicated to jihad. That's very good Arabic. But, is that so? Uh, well, he should just, uh, enough to the word no. Yeah, that's, he can translate jihad. Yeah, I yeah, think, that, that much. He, note, so anyway, he should have gotten that far. Or now, this is you now who James Clapper, you former U.S. national director of national intelligence. I'm sure has no Arabic at all, but he has a very large intelligence organization at his command, and yet he said the Muslim Brotherhood was mostly secular. The one thing you must under it seems to me obvious is it's the Muslim Brotherhood, not the secular Brotherhood. So guess what? It has a, it's not mostly secular. It's kind of an amazing uh, that, that's sort of an amazing thing. But uh, I, I guess I guess it's important that you also talk about this. Your the title of your book is the Secret Apparatus. This is one component, I guess you would say, of the Muslim Brotherhood. And I think before we get any further, because we, we're, we're, we're not, we don't have unlimited time, talk a little bit about what this secret apparatus is within the Muslim Brotherhood and how it differs from, I guess, from the public face that people like James Clapper and John Esposito seem to be uh, viewing and not being able to see beyond. So the public, the general apparatus or the general bureau or general office, it's a, just a PR facade, uh, according to my research and according to the many words of many Muslim Brotherhood leaders. And it caters to the more important operation, which is Al-Tanzim Al-Khas or Tanzim Al-Siri, which is a secret apparatus, the secret organization or this uh, or Al-Jihaz Al-Siri which is the secret apparatus. And they borrowed that terminology from Stalin's power apparatuses. Um, they actually literally borrowed the same structure of Stalin's, the internal structure of, uh, of his power apparatuses, in, and they just Islamized it. Uh, and this, they claim when they speak uh, to their Western targets that they have dismantled uh, the terrorism apparatus. And sometimes they say the 40s, sometimes the 50s, sometimes the 60s. But when they speak in Arabic, they brag about its, ex its existence. So it's it's quite extraordinary. Um, it's a body that is responsible to fra for franchising terrorism across the globe. And I'm proving in my book also from their own words and from the secret apparatus bylaws that before a Muslim Brotherhood agent or operative embarks on founding a terror group, he has to pretend to sever ties with the main apparatus and the general bureau. And he has to keep his affiliation secret even from his wife and his children. That's according to the bylaws of the secret apparatus. So when we start to look at a lot of the terrorist terror groups, uh, such as Islamic State, such as Al-Qaeda, um, and you see such as uh, Jamaat al-Tawhid wal-Jihad, and you see that all these guys were former members of the Muslim Brotherhood, you have to ask your que the question, this is a pattern of behavior. Uh, is it coincidence 
or are they franchising their brand and how involved are they with the operation of these terror groups because um i i i i do believe that they are not only involved in the establishing of terrorist groups and they started to franchise the secret apparatus under different banner after the execution of the terror theologian sayed qutb in 1965 uh, the then general guide of the muslim brotherhood al hudaybi started the very smart tactic of um operating the terrorism apparatus under different banners the first of these was tanzim 65 uh the group of 65 and then the uh, military technical college that was on uh, also a name for a militia and then aljama al islamiya these are all words uh different titles to under ostensibly different banners while they're the same guys who were members in the Muslim Brotherhood? So I think that I think the the myth you're busting, if I understand, I think a lot of people believed. I think I believe this is that the Muslim Brotherhood is sort of a gateway drug to more radical versions of Islam. So you become a Muslim Brother, but then you say, you know what, I want to get more serious about it. So you join Al Qaeda or you join the Islamic State, which uh, which broke off from Al-Qaeda, again, not because of differences in goals, but rather differences in strategies and how you get to those goals, right? There are rivalries, nothing new about having rivalries within an ideology or a theology. We saw that with the communists. We can see that with many with many groups. And I think the second, and if that's wrong, tell me, but if it's not, the second common perception that I think you're arguing is wrong is the view that in every, it, there are many different chapters of the Muslim Brotherhood, and they're all very, very different and autonomous. So the Muslim Brotherhood in Syria wouldn't necessarily be the same as the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, the Muslim Brotherhood in the United States or in Britain. And you're saying, no, no, they're much more intricately connected ideologically and in terms of goals than one might think. Am I correct in that? Absolutely, because the secret apparatus runs several subdivisions. And it exists in each country where the Muslim Brotherhood operates according to their own words. Uh, one of the most important subdivisions is the international apparatus. The Muslim Brotherhood calls it the vanguards of organized invasion. Very dramatic, but that's what they call it. And they are all bound with the bylaws of the secret apparatus, and they're all bound by the general bylaws of the Muslim Brotherhood. One of the talking points that I was offered millions of dollars to regurgitate is that each chapter is independent. And that's why I get very uncomfortable when I hear someone say that I'm pretty sure that the vast majority of people who say that are not on the pay are not getting paid by the Muslim Brotherhood, but because it's a common narrative. But some people might be saying it uh, for different for nefarious reasons. So that's a myth because if a Muslim Brotherhood member would not operate 100% in accordance with the guidance bureau and its bylaws, which uh, Con compels them to uphold jihad in every way they could possibly can, that means they would be kicked out of the group, or it means they became a regular Muslim who's not a terrorist. So now, absolutely, every member of the Muslim Brotherhood is a jihadist, and they all receive something called, they all received military training, and the family nucleus of the Muslim Brotherhood is called a battalion. Now, that's uh, a very uh, important term to describe exactly what it is. So it's so easy to talk about these issues in Arabic because after the 19, after the 2011 coup d'etat of the Muslim Brotherhood, which is euphemized as the Arab Spring, uh, people saw the face of the Muslim Brotherhood and then they started to tell me, oh, you were right all along. Well, thank you. I would have liked to hear that before my brother was tortured and they tried to assassinate me. I would have liked to hear that before uh, before I lost so much. But they established openly something called uh, torture camps, which were known in Egypt as the Muslim Brotherhood slaughterhouses, where kids were just randomly kidnapped from the streets and tortured if they looked, if they dressed too nicely. Can you believe it? One of my brother's very, one of my brother's very close friends, he's a Muslim kid who's an engineer in Germany, was coming to play video games at our house. 
because he's dressed nicely, they kidnapped him, removed his, his scalp. Okay? Horrific torture stuff. Threw him in a garbage can. For days he was missing. Someone found him. Miraculously, he was still alive. That's the indiscriminate criminality of this group. It's so brutal that they have something called the blood tax program, which is an extermination program for Muslims. We all know that the Muslim Brotherhood wants to kill non-Muslims, but actually they want to kill Muslims more because they view them, uh, uh, any Muslim who's not engaging in jihad as, a, as the real and first enemy and should be ritually sacrificed to Allah so good God can forgive the sin of abandoning Sharia law. That's directly from Hassan al-Banna. Heretics and apostates are the first enemy, even more than the infidels. The infidels can be excused. What do they know? But the heretics and the apostates are turning their back uh, on their religion. I got it. Because somebody's going to say, Cliff, you asked two, two, two or three times we didn't, and we didn't get it. Saeed Qutob, just in 30 seconds, either of you, what he contributed to the ideology, theology of the Muslim Brotherhood. Well, I mean, I just simply put, I mean, he energized the concept of, of jihad uh, uh, more so than anyone else. He also had some fascinating Quranic commentary uh, that uh, is not is not known as much in the West, but it's known in the Islamic world. But, but I mean, I, if you had to just pin it down, he says he he really did uh, add fuel to the fire of the modern conception of jihad. Uh, which is somewhat different from the traditional. Yes, and it was so brilliant. Uh, he has done uh, what uh, Abu al-Ala al-Maududi did in India. Uh, Abu al-Ala al-Maududi started to pander to the more modernized Muslims by not using the term caliphate and calling it hakimiyah which is a word derived from the Arabic word hukm, which is governance. So Sayyid Qutb starts to borrow al-Maududi's term of al-Hakimiyah, and he started to use political discourse uh, when he is discussing jihad to make it more accessible to Muslims. But till today, uh, the overwhelming majority of Muslims do not understand the writings of Sayyid Qutb because they are heavily coded. If I have Most of my friends are Muslim because I come from Egypt. I asked all of them, what is Hakimeya? And they would look at me and they say, what the heck are you talking about? And they would laugh at me. Nobody knows that term if they're not experts on counterterrorism or if they are not themselves jihadists. So, Sayyid Qud- Well, no, I mean, it, it, I mean that, that term is actually used in political treaties, uh, classical treaties. So, I mean, it's, it's not an unknown terminology. It's just simply one that was mined and modernized. No, actually, the term hakimiya, uh, in if it when you use it as a noun, that's unheard of. We've never used it. I'm a native Arabic speaker. I've I've never heard the word hakimiya until I started studying Islamic jurisprudence and the works of Sayyid Qutb and Maududi, because the term hukm is governance, uh, the term hukuma is government is government, but hakimiya is extremely awkward and a little bit unusual. Uh, but it's a side note. But that's what that was the brilliance of Sayyid Qutb. You know, Sayyid Qutb on a side note used to call before he became a member of the Muslim Brotherhood, he used to call uh Hassan al-Banna and his group the assassins. He he before he knew. But after his, in my opinion, now that's analysis, it's not information. I think his visit to America really filled him with rage. They went to Colorado, where I, I lived for a number of years, <laughs> and, it, it and filled, saw it terrible it, things. It filled Cliff with rage. Filled me, I, to, go to, to go to a church dance and to see men and women embracing publicly to I, music? You know, my I, God, I never got over it. I, I do have a, I have another historical question here. I mean, I was looking at your dis, uh, your discussion and, and uh, I'll just quote from your book, and then uh, we can take it from there. You say, for decades, the State Department's strategy by, by large has been one of dictatorship maintenance. While the U.S. directly supports tyrants across the globe, I think that's an indisputable fact. It also, and here comes the question block, it also engages in a more destructive type of dictatorship maintenance by abiding and betting the dictatorial, social, and religious tra- practices perpetrated by Islamists. 
could you explain that a little bit further? And let me just preface this by saying I, you know, I, I, I have had to deal so often with folks who think the CIA was masterminding uh, the expansion of Islamism in Afghanistan, where in reality, uh, the agency had it was wasn't thinking about it at all. Uh, and uh, I had lots of friends over on the Afghan desk. It was right across from where I was on the Iran desk. Uh, there was a lot of cross fertilization. And the notion that the individuals involved who I knew personally <laughs> were thinking up some mastermind plan uh, to spread Islamism is, is, to put it politely, odd. So I am sort of curious about what you mean by uh, the United States was, was abiding and abetting a dictatorial social and religious practice. And you all go on to say Obama knew they were bastards, but he wanted to make them his bastards. Because after a conversation with a gentleman, I can tell you who it is later. I do not want to advertise his name. One of my first meetings in State Department with this gentleman, I was under the impression that people in the government would recognize the Muslim Brotherhood as dangerous. I told him, we have to stop the Muslim Brotherhood. And he said, ha, 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 there's no we, we, you are on your own. We want the Muslim Brotherhood. They are bastards, but they are our bastards. And that's why I named one of my chapters, the conclusion in my chapter, he is not your bastard. Sometimes it's been pragmatic. A lot of people think that they can use one faction against the other. That's been done and tested. And it's like the Germans did that under the Kaiser when they worked with Islamists against the Brits. The Nazis also utilized Islamists. And that's a known fact in the armies. A lot of governments utilized and worked with Islamists thinking that they can so, I mean, do you do you, do you think the do you think the CIA was abetting uh, willfully, knowingly abetting? Islamism? No, I don't think that at all. I am quoting okay. a declassified document from the CIA uh, that's on their website that was titled "Covert Action" that states that where they explicitly went into who was in that meeting, the head of uh, Saudi intelligence, it was then the president of Pakistan, and how they plan to fund the Afghani jihadists against the Soviets. But more importantly, they also plan to fund the ideological campaign to propagandize for jihad. You should send me that document because I doubt seriously that is an accurate rendition. There's no question there about the meetings for where the United States says to the Saudis, uh, how about you pay at least 50%? And then there's no question where the Pakistani Zayal Hulk comes and says, you know, you do whatever I tell you to do here, which is exactly what happened. I mean, case officers didn't even have the, have the authority to go to Peshawar, all right? I'm not contradicting that. What I'm saying is I copied and pasted this document in the book. I have to confess, maybe I missed it, but I didn't see anything that reminded me of a CIA covert action program in the book. I copy and pasted the document as it is inside that chapter, and I will send you the original one and where you can see it. My husband was uh, is a retired supervisory special agent. It's overwhelmingly patriotic. I'm not, I, I will never think anything else because I've spoken with these guys and they take a bullet uh, for any decent human being. But there is a policy that I have seen and I have witnessed that is for a general policy with State Department that is for um, uh, di di maintaining dictatorial norms. When President Barack Obama came out after Coptic Christians were slaughtered in the Maspero massacres and ran over with military vehicles, and he told them to restrain themselves. That was horrific. That is dictatorship maintenance of the Islamist tyrannical project of exterminating Christians in the Middle East. That's just one example of many. And I was supposed to get executed during the Maspero massacre. I have one of my close friends whom I was supposed to meet there was killed execution style that day in front of TV cameras. And that's why I fled to America. So I know that that exists on some level. I mean, I'll say one thing on this and see if either of you disagree with me. I don't think you will. The U.S. support for the resistance against the Soviets in Afghanistan 
It was based, uh, I think, it was based largely on the idea. Okay, we want the Soviets to lose. There are people fighting. A lot of them are religious. We're pro-religion. That's probably a good thing. If we support them, they'll probably be grateful to us. They'll see us as their allies. All will be well. Didn't quite work out that way. Simple enough. Well, I I don't even think that that that's putting too much thought into it. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I don't want to give the CIA yeah, credit for too I much mean, thought. There's, Never there's want to simply do that. there was. Uh, <laughs> There was an objective to uh, bleed the Soviet Union, uh, right. and there were disagreements within the agency. For example, the agency ardently o- opposed the delivery of Stinger missiles. Uh, that was driven by the Pentagon, uh, a small group within the Pentagon that won the day. But the uh, the agency thought they were too provocative. Uh, so, uh, the, <laughs> what does that sound like? By yeah, the way, yeah, yeah. So the uh, the 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 notion that the agency thought about any of this in religious terms is 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 extremely odd because that's not the way the CIA thinks about uh you should have walked over to the next desk and said guys let me explain to you a little bit about historic islam uh, uh yeah yeah i mean it, mm-hmm. uh, it uh, the agency is not exactly what you call a reflective institution so uh you don't have you don't have <laughs> right. many discussions right. on islam and, and that's very common that's very common in bureaucracies in all countries uh, yes. it's it's, uh, it's mainly out of uh inefficiency and um it's because a lot of people perpetuate the same mistakes you'd think that after 9/11 say oh maybe we shouldn't send uh weapons grade uh um military grade weapons to a bunch of serial killers maybe that was a bad idea but <laughs> but but no people don't learn from history and uh, that's something that's why I call one of my chapters history is not history I've got a few questions I want to get through quickly cuz uh, we're 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 running long but I do want answers to them as best I can cuz I'm curious and one is uh, Cynthia who leads the Muslim Brotherhood today? The Qatari regime, according to Saif al-Islam's uh, senior advisor and Qaddafi's senior advisor, Muhammad al-Houni, he said that the Qatari regime are actual members of the Muslim Brotherhood. And he was not saying that is a bad thing, actually. Like, he wasn't thinking that that was a bad thing, but that's how... They were able to convince uh, Muammar al-Qaddafi and his sons to adopt uh, the project and to allow them to operate more freely. So while they did not themselves, Qaddafi and his son joined the Brotherhood, they allowed them almost uh, to operate with impunity in the country. It's not like there's one person out there, everybody knows, oh, this is the supreme leader of the Muslim Brotherhood. It's, It's foggier than that, which makes it hard for, it's always hard for people to think about an organization if they don't know who the leadership is. I think that's both true in a good sense and maybe in terms of the the revolution taking place in, in Iran. We'll see how that turns out. But Antifa or something like that, you can't say, oh, I know, you know, this is run by Nick Quintus or by, you know, some particular character. And with the Muslim Brotherhood, it's not. Yeah, yeah. so I know that the Qataris are card-carrying members from uh, fr- from many sources. But in my opinion, and that's analysis, not information, my analysis is that leader of the Muslim Brotherhood right now is Recep Tayyip Erdogan. I think he is the head and of the... And Erdogan, of course, is the for 20 years, he's been more or less the, the, the leader. I think the, Erdogan would definitely want, Turkey. want others to think that he's the... <laughs> He's, well, this is very, but this is important to, to understand. I think it is important for people to understand, and this is going to be my next: who in the Middle East supports the Muslim Brotherhood, and who in the Middle East opposes the Muslim Brotherhood. So we're talking very much, certainly, about Qatar and Karadari, who we mentioned before was a radio broadcaster, sort of a spiritual, ideological, theoretical, an ideologue, I would say, of the Muslim Brotherhood. But he's died now. He was very popular. People listened to him. He had a great influence. But it came out of but that Al Jazeera has a Muslim Brotherhood, at least influence, and it's really controlled by the government, even though a lot of people don't understand it. It's controlled by the regime in Qatar. Um, the fact that uh, that Erwan appears to be a Muslim Brotherhood supporter, that's very important. That's a, in other words, so we have a NATO member that is supporting Muslim Brotherhood. But it's important to recognize, and I want to do that the Saudis now are anti-Muslim Brotherhood. The uh, Emiratis are anti-Muslim Brotherhood. They are stronger on it than the United States or anybody in Europe in terms of saying it's a terrorist organization, as you say, and we should oppose them unequivocally. They don't even understand why the Israelis are not clearer about Hamas being a Muslim Brotherhood offshoot. 
right? They should say that. People don't talk about, you know, Amin al-Husseini was during the before during the British time, uh, the Mufti of Jeru- Grand Mufti of Jerusalem, leader of what were then known as Palestinian Arabs. He, of course, spent the war in Europe with Hitler as his uh, associate and an assistant. And he was, as you say, a Muslim Brotherhood member or supporter. Let me uh, let me let you go from there. Completely agree with every single thing you said. And uh, the reason I say uh, that uh, Erdogan uh, is potentially the head of the Muslim Brotherhood is because in 2016, there was a huge, massive international conference held in Turkey called Chukran Turkiya, which is thank you, Turkey, or thanks, Turkey, where um, Karadawi announced that Erdogan is the sultan of the Islamic world. That's a very big deal. And then after that happened, all of a sudden, all members of the Muslim Brotherhood started using, stopped using the term Turkish and started using the term Ottoman. (laughs) So now they're all neo-Ottomans. And there is actually a lot of efforts uh, to revive. And they say we are, we want, we would like to revive the Ottoman Empire under the leadership of Erdogan. And he's very flattered by that. And he is a known member of the Muslim Brotherhood. He's not even a sympathizer. He's one of its, he's been a member since he was a teenager. so I think he is the actual head. Uh, the secret apparatus was very active in uh, under his regime. I discuss in excruciating detail with names and dates, and I have the recordings to prove it, of how he used uh, his government as basically a smuggling camp for jihadists in and outside of Turkey internationally they were plotting terrorist attacks just so brazen it was on tv plotting terrorist attacks against governments like egypt against uh, groups like coptic christians advocating for uh indiscriminate warfare uh saying that they're going to slaughter every muslim who opposes them so so they had full freedom under the turkish regime and that's why I believe that's where the headquarters are right now. So my last question for today, how deep is the penetration of the Muslim Brotherhood in the U.S.? And I'm thinking in terms of the government, I'm thinking in terms of various organizations that claim to be Muslim civil rights organizations. How, how strong is the Muslim Brotherhood here in the U.S. in your, in your estimation? Unfortunately, uh, they are extremely powerful. I'm, for example, blocked from giving lectures in a lot of American universities, actually most American universities, but one professor in Manhattan College is a self-confessed mass murderer responsible for the killing and injury of 506 people, and he is teaching at Manhattan College. Now, that blows my mind. That sounds like an insane thing to say out loud. Every time I say this, it does not sound real to me, but this is what he admitted to publicly. And even DHS tried to uh, send him back to Egypt because he's a very well-known terrorist in Egypt, but a court upheld, uh, gave him asylum. So, Well, and we gave asylum to the blind sheikh. You might just say a word about that. Why does he need to live in the U.S.? And and again, just give 30 seconds or a minute on who the blind check was, what he did. Andy McCarthy, a friend of all of ours who's at the National Review, uh, prosecuted him successfully and he died in prison. So the blind check is the most important Islamist figure um, in the last 100 years for jihadist groups. When I decided to study Islamic theology, I studied what exactly what he studied to become who he is. That's what took me 23 years. Um, he is his dissertation, which he received PhD dissertation, which he received from Al Azhar University in Cairo in 1971, names the groups Al Jama' Al Islamiyya, which is Islamic group and the group Al-Qaeda. And it's not a coincidence that afterwards, two groups bearing the same name came to fruition 
after he wrote the manual on how to establish a terror group. And, and that also uh, makes us ask a lot of questions about Al-Azhar University in Egypt. But the blind sheikh is the most important theologian. And even Osama bin Laden, during his first video after 9-11, he said that one of the reasons he committed this atrocity was that the blind sheikh was in military prison. And I think understanding this character, which I dedicate a lot of uh, a, a lot in my book to to explaining him and explain his writings, can show the f- atrocious failure to learn from history and how we are repeating it by giving asylum to ten blind sheikhs now actually much more than that, instead of one. Well, I mean, uh, his, uh, on his importance is beyond a shadow of a doubt. I mean, he, uh, he for a variety of reasons, both operationally and theologically, uh, was a pivotal figure in the development of uh, modern Islamism. I don't know. I mean, I have big questions about where modern Islamism is today on the, on the Sunni side. I think it's dead as a doornail on the Shiite side. And there are a lot I have more questions that I have answers about where they are, given what's happened uh, in the Arab world since uh, since 9-11. Uh, but uh, uh, I certainly think the blind sheikh is, is is a pivotal historical figure. I, I for the life of me, I don't know where the Muslim Brotherhood is in the United States. Uh, the organization has been profoundly battered. Uh, and I don't... Uh, I, it's it's very difficult for me to see where whether it could be renascent. It's possible. I mean, the one thing that we do know historically, and I don't know whether it applies now, is that uh, is that tyrannical behavior on the part of modern Middle Eastern rulers has a way of re-energizing the religious identity. Uh, could that repeat itself? possible i don't know but i mean islamism has sustained enormous amount of damage uh and it's been a party to a variety of atrocities in the arab world it's no longer just a victim it's been a part of the problem so i don't it's 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 again i it's not clear to me i think it's in decline i suspect it's in serious decline can we can we agree on on this and this will be my final point that if you were a professor in an American university uh in the department of middle east studies and you are subtly or even not so subtly pro muslim brotherhood your your career will not be in jeopardy but if you're a professor at an American university in the department of middle east studies and you are in, uh, uh, publicly opposed to and critical of the muslim brotherhood you will not get tenure I don't know. I don't know if it would be that you would not get tenure. It certainly probably wouldn't redound to your advantage. But that that has I, I think that has nothing to do really with this with what I would call an, uh, a sympathy for Islamism. I think that has to do with a certain profound leftward drift uh, inside of uh, the American academe. It has become, in some cases, unhinged. Uh, primarily from any type of serious scholarship. So uh, where ideology trumps uh, what you might call the pursuit of truth. Uh, it's, it's not, I think, a reflection primarily, I, you know, there could be exceptions here and there, of a certain latent sympathy or overt sympathy for the Muslim Brotherhood or for a wish for the Muslim Brotherhood to be triumphant. Uh, uh, I mean, it, it could develop. I mean, we both love Michel Ulbeck, uh, so it's possible that you could have something develop, uh, you know, along the lines of submission. Uh, but uh, I, I, I don't think it's quite at that level yet. I, I think you're not wrong in blaming the far left and the woke left for confusing anti-Islamism with Islamophobia, I think they do constantly. And so that to become so that any criticism of Islamism, of jihadism, of any of the Muslim Brotherhood becomes Islamophobia. And that's a form of that's seen as a form of forbidden bigotry. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. And racism. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I mean it's it's yeah. It, no, it's 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 more about the strength of the left than the strength perhaps of the Islamists themselves, although it redounds to the benefit of people like John Esposito who are sympathetic 
uh, and and maybe credulous when it comes to Islamism in the world. Yeah, and I, also I, I, funding I, helps. Funding, uh, <laughs> funding having, helps. Uh, yeah, having Islamist funding, uh, like Al Walid Ibn Talal Center uh, for uh, I think I can't remember its exact title, but it was in Georgetown, and uh, John Esposito was its head. Was was getting its funding from Al Walid Ibn Talal when he was pro Muslim Brotherhood. And of course, the uh, the Qataris spend millions and millions of dollars on these universities, and they have their education city in Doha, I believe, and so they have an influence on these universities. No, I, I, I think I, I have to be. I don't know, uh, uh, Mr. Esposito, but I think I think I probably I should say. I mean, I think uh, I've uh, read, you know, his his work, not all of it, uh, over the years, and I I think he would have those views regardless of any type of funding arrangement. Uh, oh, yes, I, I, I don't, I don't, sure. I'm I not, don't I'm not saying anybody's bribed into these views, but I'm saying what you fund, what you reward, you get more of and what, and what, and, and that, that has, I'm not saying that, that those who have those views will be rewarded and will have be, become more prominent, which is not the same yes, as saying they'd have different views if yeah. they weren't making no, money off fair. it. I'm not trying to say that. Yeah, it's always more know, We never, we don't have our bank, their bank accounts. No one knows that, but, but it does certainly help when you're getting Qatari funding. When you look at the Georgetown uh, branch in Qatar, for example, they were involved in mediating between the Muslim Brotherhood and Iran and the Qatari government. They were involved in talks with the Iranian regime. So they're in, they're in, they're doing stuff that could be illegal according to the laws of this country. So, um, yeah, I, I gave up on academia. They are also uh, targeting even Hollywood. One of the big Hollywood actors uh, from a Middle Eastern background, Amru Wakid, who acted with Scarlett Johansson in Syriana, sorry, in Lucy, and with this other actor. I'm terrible with, I don't watch movies, so I don't know. I watched, uh, he acted also in a movie um Lucy Syriana and others the man is called Amru Waqid if you google him in arabic Amru Waqid Muslim Brotherhood slaughterhouses you will see his video interrogating a kidnapped tortured man why he was in Tahrir Square that's criminal behavior it's criminal to illegally interrogate a tortured man in a horrific frightening manner and then go and become a Hollywood superstar. It's mind-boggling to me. Uh, if I didn't have the video, I wouldn't. I, I wouldn't have believed it if I hadn't seen it with my own eyes. This is a. It's a fascinating, difficult, distressing subject. Um, but I'm glad you've written this book. People who want to understand more about it, we've only touched a few bases. There's so much more. The book is the secret apparatus the muslim brotherhood's industry of death cynthia farahat thank you so much for having this conversation with us thank you for having me thank you Pleasure. thank you ruel and thanks to all the rest of you who have stayed with us for this interesting conversation here today on foreign policy Thank you for listening to this episode of Foreign Policy. If you enjoyed the show, please rate us, preferably with five stars. Ratings and reviews help give us visibility and the opportunity to reach more people who seek to understand the most critical national security and foreign policy issues. Also, make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. Follow FDD on social media and visit our website at fdd.org. There you can find research by FDD experts, you can subscribe to all FDD's products, you can catch up on any past episodes you may have missed. Finally, we'd love your feedback, your ideas, your questions, your criticisms. Send us an email at foreignpodicy at fdd.org. Until next time, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.